making sure my computer is on mute. <laughs> um, glad you all are here this morning. I am honored to get to be here. It really is like such fun to get to try something new and serve you in this way. And I really do think that your perspective on church shifts when you start getting involved and serving on Sunday mornings, whether that's making coffee or running sound, or working in the back or being up here. And I think that it gives you this sense of ownership when the language shifts from we go to XYZ Church to like we are XYZ Church. And I remember feeling that sense pretty early on when I started coming here. I recognized it in myself because someone new would walk in and I would introduce myself and maybe they would ask a question about Mosaic or maybe we would just do something in our service like say the creed or the giving confession. And I would find myself explaining to them, oh, hey, this is why we do that thing. Like, this is what that means to us. And I didn't feel like I had to refer them to Kyle or Jonathan or Drew or anybody else that you see up here on a regular basis because I had this sense that this is my family of God and I can explain why we do those things because I know the family language here. And this is really just that on like a slightly larger scale, right? I'm not a pastor, though I have spent a few years in semi-vocational ministry. I don't have a degree in biblical studies, but what I do have is ownership in this space. I am invested here and I'm invested in you. And one of the things that I said since Kyle and Jonathan and I first started talking about me doing this is that if we're gonna say that anybody can share the gospel and anybody can talk about Jesus and all of that, then that means that there is a space here to hear from lay people about how the power and the presence of God and his word is transforming their lives. And so I am really excited to get to share like what God has been teaching me this week like through this passage. Now, obviously continuing in our study in Exodus, and so I'm just gonna remind us of a couple of things in order to set us up to talk about today's text. So far in the story of Exodus, we have been following a narrative, and it is one you're probably very familiar with because it's been hitting some of those signature scenes and characters that you talk about in Sunday school. And it's honestly been a pretty exciting story up to this point, right? We're talking about liberation from slavery and these miraculous acts of God on behalf of his people. And Kyle and Jonathan and Rachel have talked, kind of walked us through these first two literary movements. And we're definitely leaning on the Bible project for kind of that literary movement structure. And it's been super helpful. So that first movement starts at the beginning of Exodus and it runs through partway through chapter 16. And it's following the people of God out of slavery. And it kind of ends with that Passover moment and the people walk out of Egypt. And that theme that we were exploring was about the name of Yahweh. The second movement picks up kind of halfway through chapter 13, keeps chapter 24, and it follows the people through the wilderness from Egypt to Mount Sinai. And the theme that we explored was about testing, both God testing the people and the people testing God. And it ended with that renewal of the covenant and God calling Moses to go up Mount Sinai and through this wall of clouds and fire. And we're told that he stays up there for 40 days and that God speaks to him. So that's where we are. We're in this like transitional moment as we enter this third literary movement. And it's really a turning point, right? We're following Moses into God's presence on the mountain. And we're gonna start exploring this third theme, which is about the tabernacle or the temple in chapters 25 to 31. 
And what I want to kind of call your attention to is that at this point in the book, the narrative that we have been following is basically going to pause. And instead of a story, as we typically understand it, we're going to get this series of speeches from God to Moses. And they really appear to be just like page after page of these very detailed, very specific architectural blueprints, so to speak, for the construction of this special tent called the tabernacle. And the narrative is really only going to keep moving when God speaks, which he does seven times. And you'll see it in the text, the Lord said to Moses. And we will kind of like gloss over some of those details in a minute. But I tell you this now because if you don't know where we're going, then as Jonathan has kind of been joking about for the last couple of weeks, this is the moment where you may start to question like your Bible reading plan choices because you really could be reading anything else. And instead you're sitting here and you have to ask the questions that I've had to ask this week, which is why? Like, why is God giving so much instruction here regarding the tabernacle and its furniture? Like, why does this matter? Clearly, it is important. The fact that so much time and attention to detail is dedicated to this topic should signify to us that something is significant here. And it just seems like it might be more than just the construction of like this mobile worship site and introducing this new religious system. And there is. Two weeks ago in our, in our series, Jonathan did a really good job of kind of like pulling us out and giving us this bird's eye view on how the story of Exodus is recreating the story of Eden again and again. And this week, what our passage is doing is essentially like zooming in and it's going to look at one particular example of how God is recreating Eden through the story of the tabernacle. And the passage that we read is particularly about the Ark of the Covenant and the Holy of Holies. So here is where we're headed. I'm a note taker. I kind of like to know where we're going. So I'm going to tell you, like, this is where we're headed. Amongst these very repetitive, very specific, potentially boring lists of instructions and blueprints, we see this amazing truth, that God's purpose is to dwell among his people. And this is something that he established, like, right back in the very first chapters of the Bible, and he still hasn't given up on it. And it's this defining relational motif that we're going to see over and over. Like Eden, which if you'll remember means delight, it's this place where heaven and earth are one. And it's where God walks with his children. And his goal through the tabernacle is to bring his people back to that place of communion with him. So here at Mount Sinai, God is instructing Moses to build this tabernacle temple and it's going to serve both as a means of dealing with Israel's like moral brokenness and as this micro Eden where God can again dwell with his people. So it's at once both like this practical mechanism for restoration of the people of God at a particular moment in history and it is this symbol of eternal life that sits at the center of the Israelites' camp and it's meant to shape and to form their identity. Looking ahead to like next week and future weeks, like the narrative is going to like pick up again when Moses comes down from Mount Sinai. We're going to have this familiar story of the golden calf. And then everything in chapters 25 to 31, all these instructions for the tabernacle are essentially going to repeat. Except if you read in the text, you'll see this shift from God saying, like, this is what you are to do, a future imperative to Moses and the people and the craftsmen essentially like doing the thing and like building this special tent according to God's instructions. So what we're going to do is we're going to start kind of talking about the more practical side of things 
then we'll take like a quick dip in to like look at the Ark of the Covenant specifically, and then we're going to pull back out and explore some of these Eden parallels that I think that we're supposed to see here in the text. So from a, logis- like a lo- purely logistical standpoint, the tabernacle has an outer court, it has an inner court called the holy place, and it's got like an inner inner court, um, this curtained off section that's called the Holy of Holies, and that's where the Ark of the Covenant is going to be housed. And there are a million and one diagrams of what this looks like on the internet. So like, I'm not going to sit here and try and describe for you what it looks like, like using my hands. You can Google it when you get home. Um, just keep in mind, at the end of the day, even though these blueprints are very detailed, we really don't actually know like exactly what this looks like. And that is honestly totally okay. Um, there's a good amount of mystery here. But since our application is not to go home and like build one of these in our backyard, like we don't have to stress about it. And instead, we can kind of lean in to what God is showing us about himself through the text. So starting in Exodus 25, we have God's first of seven speeches, and it is essentially a list of seven different items. It's going to talk about the materials that the people are going to need to build the tabernacle. And it's not an exhaustive list. It's just kind of emphasizing the fact that these elements are generally precious and rare and unique. Then it's going to specifically talk about the Ark of the Covenant. It's going to talk about a table for bread. It's going to talk about a lampstand. You can picture like a golden menorah. It's going to talk about the tent and its curtains. It's going to talk about a bronze altar. And it's going to talk about like the frames and the curtains that make up this outer courtyard. After that, the second speech talks about instructions for this lampstand specifically. It's going to talk about how it's supposed to be tended morning and night so that the light, this light is always shining before God, kind of like the stars. There's a couple chapters about the priests. One of them is going to focus on their clothes. They have seven items. There's a long section about rituals, like consecrate these priests, which takes, you guessed it, seven days. There's going to be some laws about sacrifices, and there's seven more paragraphs of tabernacle instruction that kind of close up with this idea that we're supposed to observe the Sabbath. So how are we feeling? Like, that's a lot, right? And that's like just like this really high view. So like, let's talk specifically about one item, about the Ark of the Covenant. It is interesting to me to note that this is the first item that the text is talking about after that list of like everything that you're gonna need. You might think that after you talk about like all the items that you need, you would then like talk about like the actual building and then you would talk about like everything that's inside, but that's not what we see in the text. And I think it's logical to assume that the author wants to stress the importance of this one item because it is the central point of contact between heaven and earth, between heaven and this tabernacle. So what actually is the ark? It is a box, it is made of wood, and it's covered in gold, and it's supposed to contain three different items. We heard about one of them in the text, in other places we hear about these other two. It's supposed to have God's commands on these tablets of stone, it's supposed to have a jar of manna, and it's supposed to have Aaron's rod. It is never to be touched, it is only carried with these poles. And there's a description of the lid, or the cover, and it's called the atonement cover or the mercy seat, depending on your translation. And it has cherubim on it, which are these creatures who have both faces and wings, representing heaven and earth. And it's kind of a callback again. It's like the cherubim that we hear about in the Garden of Eden. But this is not just a box with some important stuff in it, right? This is a mobile throne that is going to host the presence of God. And you'll note that there's like no statue, there's no representation of God on the lid. And that's because God is going to actually descend and occupy this space himself. 
So the ark is kind of to the tabernacle, what the fire and the clouds are to the top of Mount Sinai, and what the tree of life is to the Garden of Eden. It is the thing over which God's presence rests, and it's the place that kind of overlaps with God's heavenly home. And this is like a divine reality. Like we don't really know what that means, but we do know that the presence of God in the cloud that the people have been following all through the wilderness, it's going to descend and it's going to settle here in this space. And it's one of these things that we like, we talk about this a lot, how we hold things in tension. Like this is something that we're holding in tension. There is reality as like our senses experience it. And then there are these moments and spaces where it feels like something like opens that reality up to something that is richer and denser and it's really difficult for us to put language and images to it. And in a very, very real way, like that's what's happening here. And many of you know this, like I am a graphic designer and a photographer. And so seeing beauty in the world around me is like kind of in my blood. Like my mom is an artist, my sister is an artist, one of my brothers is in media and production. So things like art and metaphors and different kinds of visuals have always been really meaningful to me. And because of this, because this is the way that God made my brain to work, one of the ways that God speaks to me in the past is through images and visuals, through pictures that I can either see in my head or in the world around me. And I can kind of read meaning from these images like you would read words in a book. Obviously, it's like a more imprecise science. You kind of got to leave room for interpretation and pray into it. But in the end, similar to how if you memorize something, like to a song and it's easier to remember, these images stick with me and my impression of like what God was saying sticks with me too. And I tell you this because it's not a huge leap for me to imagine that these images in scripture, these furniture blueprints, are not only items that the people are supposed to physically make because they serve a practical purpose, but they are also these symbols for which the people are supposed to glean like this deeper spiritual meaning from. So the whole design of the tabernacle, the imagery and the architecture and the symbolism is supposed to call to mind for us the story of Eden and point to this union between heaven and earth that we can, what we can see and experience, but also the things that we can't see, but we know are real. So let's talk about just a handful of kind of the parallels that are here. First of all, I think that we're supposed to see parallels between the work of building this tabernacle temple and God's own work of creation in Genesis 1 and 2. Genesis 1 and 2 kind of depict heaven and earth as this like cosmic arena where God is going to have fellowship with humans. And then in Genesis 3, right, the humans forfeit God's presence and his blessing. And now we're going to see that the tabernacle is depicted as the means through which that lost fellowship is going to be restored, right? So in the creation story in Genesis 1, we see a series of seven acts of creation, and each act is marked by this divine speech, right? And God said, blah, 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 blah. On the seventh day, God's presence fills creation, and he takes up his rest and his rule. The instructions to build the tabernacle are also happening over a series of seven acts, and each one is marked by this divine speech, and the Lord said. And then after that point, the priest or the king is going to be able to rest and rule in God's presence. The Genesis 2 creation story, the focus is more on like the land, on this special place that's called Eden. 
And then in the middle of the land of Eden, God plants a garden, and that's where he and humanity are going to live together. And the tabernacle and the temple are kind of modeled after this idea of a garden. When you read this like full section of text, there's all this imagery about flowers and like the tree of life. And we see these humans, these priests who are going to work and keep this tabernacle in God's presence, just like Adam and Eve were to work in the garden. And so it's, they're in God's presence and it's the same job description once again. And we're seeing this like reconstruction of God's good creation. There's going to be similar descriptions of roles and materials like gold and precious stones and guardian cherubims and these consecrated priests who are like new humans entering a new creation. And ultimately, like all of these instructions communicate both order and work. And we're reminded of those, that language about Adam and Eve. Seventh day of creation, God rests. After the tabernacle is constructed, the people are commanded to observe the Sabbath. And after that creation narrative, the very next chapter is about humans' disobedience and the fall, and they forfeit God's presence and his blessing. And what do we read in this text, like right after God gives the instructions for the tabernacle? We have this golden calf account of disobedience. And I think this is a, a good moment to have a little sidebar and to say, like, because Exodus has been narrative in structure so far, we tend to read it in a linear fashion and assume that, like, time is progressing with the events happening in order. And this is not actually necessarily the case every time. And we have to remember that, like, the author's purpose in this book, in the Pentateuch, like, it's not just to communicate this objective historical order of events. It's about so much more than that. It's been written to teach us, like, these deeply spiritual lessons. And so to make his point, the author is going to put things in an order that's meant to make us think. Particularly if you're reading it in the original language, which I am not going to do, Jonathan can do that later if he wants to, um, but we're not going to get lost in the weeds there. But what I want you to know now is like the author is communicating in a way where his words are going to have the maximum amount of impact. And it makes me think about like an attorney in court. Like there might be a moment where the attorney is going to withhold information until the moment when what he's going to say is going to have the maximum amount of impact on the jury. Like that's kind of what we're seeing here in parts of the Pentateuch where it's like these moments are strategically placed so that we see these parallels. The last parallel I'm going to pull from this text is kind of about this sacred space that breaks down into these three different tiers that map onto the tabernacle, they map onto Mount Sinai, they map onto Eden, kind of symbolically from these levels of lesser to greater holiness. So for the tabernacle, we've got like this outer courtyard. It's where the people can go. We have the tent proper, the holy place. This is where the priests can go. And then we have the Holy of Holies where only one selected priest can go once a year on the Day of Atonement. With Sinai, we've got like the bottom of the mountain where the people are. We have kind of halfway up the mountain where the elders and Moses and Joshua are going to go. And then we have the top of the mountain where only Moses is going to go. And even that, it's like only after waiting for like a week. And once again, we've got the outer area. It's like the land. We have the garden in Eden, and then we have the tree of life that's in the center of the garden. And there is a ton more symbolism over these chapters about each of these individual pieces of furniture, and we're not going to get lost there. But what I do want to say is that for me, seeing this symbolism is where the rubber meets the road. Like, that's where this passage comes alive for me. Because honestly, none of the symbolism, like none of this deeper spiritual meaning, like it did not have to be there. 
The tabernacle did not need to have any deeper spiritual meaning beyond the practical purpose for which it was created. It could have served its function as a bridge between God and humanity just as well. Like, it did not need to be beautiful, and yet it is. And I don't say this to emphasize that so that we can, like, appreciate its artisticness. Like, that's great. I'm an artist. I think that's awesome. I obviously value that. But what I am struck by is this sense of the vast masterpiece of God's work in the world around us, that everything is connected in far more ways than we realize or probably will ever see on this side of eternity, and that someday we're going to look back and we're going to say, this was all pointing at that, like every little thing was a demonstration of your love. Like, that's overwhelming. And the picture that kind of comes to mind for me is about a man like proposing to his future wife. And like imagine with me that he has with him like a framed receipt from their very first date. And his fiance is gonna look at him and she's gonna be like, you knew, like even then? And he's gonna be like, yes, like I always knew. And that's God here. Like he's always been planning for this moment. And so I walk away from this text thinking that perhaps God is kinder and wiser than I thought. And it begs the question, like, how then should we think? If this is the God, if this is who God is, and this is what he's done for us, like, how does that shape and form our hearts? And are we willing to give ourselves over to a God who would go to such lengths for us? Now, at the end of the day, the tabernacle temple is not the same thing as Eden. And we shouldn't mistake the symbol for the reality. Like, this is a human-made replica of a heavenly thing. And as such, it is limited. Um, this tent alone is not enough to save the people. It is not a talisman, though they will sometimes try to use it as one. You know, we are looking at a post-fall and failure world where the people of God need a mechanism where sin and holiness can coexist. And this is exactly what they get through the tabernacle and the sacrificial system that it is going to establish. The nation of Israel is given a very particular access to the localized presence of God. And God's very real presence, like it is there above the ark. It is not diminished. Like God is not less than fully himself in this space because it's just a replica. But access to him is different. Like there's still a contrast here between the language of a priest being able to enter this special place like once a year and the language that we have about Adam and Eve like walking freely in the presence of God. So the implication is clear that like the people of God can only enter his presence on his terms. And one of, the, one of the commentaries Jonathan gave me to read this week was talking about how, like, the structure of this tabernacle, like, it's not meant to exclude God from his people, but it is meant to safeguard, like, this proper approach to a holy God who can only be approached through the atoning blood of a sacrifice. And I think we'd be, like, remiss here to not mention, like, where all this is ultimately heading. Like, God dwells with humans in Eden, and then that relationship and fellowship is somewhat restored to the tabernacle and the temple. And then finally, in the presence of Jesus, like he is the temple. He's the true incarnation of heaven and earth. Those things come together in him. And through him, through Jesus, like all of creation, again, becomes the place where God is going to rule with his people. 
and further than that, like through the presence of the Holy Spirit, like the presence of God comes and it dwells in us. And we become these like mobile temples, so to speak, with Christ's blood serving as the means through which our very hearts are like made approachable to a holy God. Mankind, like we, they're outside of Eden for a reason, right? But these blueprints serve as evidence of just how much God like, wants us to be reunited with him. And if we sit and we imagine this beautiful piece of craftsmanship that sits at the center of the community of the people of God, it is telling us this story of God's mercy and his grace and his generosity and how like, he is so in charge. Um, but not because, as I said earlier, we should go build one of these like, in our backyards. Like, this is important because of what it reveals about what God is like and the links that he will go to to reunite his people with himself. And all through the Pentateuch, like all through this book, we see story after story of people demonstrating failure to trust that God is good and kind and wise and legitimately in charge. And I, I was reminded of the very beginning of the Jesus Storybook Bible that we use in the back with our kids. And at the beginning, it's kind of talking about like what the Bible is. And it talks about how some people think that the Bible is like a book of heroes. And it's like, actually, a lot of the characters like aren't heroes at all, and it says they make a lot of fake mistakes, sometimes they make those mistakes on purpose, they get afraid and they run away, and sometimes they're just downright mean. And like these pages don't shy away from those failures, and we see their consequences play out on a global scale. And yet, God's promises remain certain, even in the face of all of this lack of faith. And so we can be confident that God's relationship with his people has a future, even if they and we have proved faithless in the past. Another one of the commentaries I read this week um, talked about like this narrative strategy in the Pentateuch that contrasts Abraham and Moses, and it displays kind of this distinction between how faith and trust in God characterized the people of God before the giving of law, the law. And you think about Abraham, and it talks about how his faith is like credited to him as righteousness. But after the giving of the law, the people of God are often characterized by faithlessness and failure. And the argument that the author is making is that this is this clear indicator of the Pentateuch's view on Mosaic law, even from like the moment that it's given. Like it's already looking forward to a time when the words of God are going to be truly internalized and written on the hearts of the people and not on tablets of stone. And it reminds me of these verses in Jeremiah, and I'm just going to read them, because I'm not making them up. They're right here. Um, in Jeremiah uh, 31, 31, it says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. For I will forgive their iniquity, and they will, I will remember their sin no more. And then in Ezekiel 36, it says, and I will give you a new heart, and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. And it skips down. And they will say, this land that was desolate 
has become like the Garden of Eden. And the nations that are left all around you shall know that I am the Lord. I have rebuilt the ruined places and replanted that which was desolate. I am the Lord. I have spoken and I will do it. And as the band kind of comes back up and we transition into communion, I think this is the moment where we recognize that this, that new covenant space that Ezekiel is talking about, like that's the moment that we're living in. We have access to that new covenant space. We have access to God's presence, to the Holy of Holies, the top of the mountain, the tree of life. And the spirit lives in us, and as Rachel said, like he's decreating and recreating us day by day to reflect this truth, that the place that was once desolate and ruined can become like Eden again. And it's a limited Eden because the narrative's not finished yet, but we have this hope because heaven and earth are reunited in the person of Jesus Christ. And this is what we celebrate each week when we take communion. We acknowledge that we face the same questions in the face of our doubt and our struggle that the people of God in Exodus did. But our reality is not their reality because we live on the other side of the resurrection of Christ. And we don't have to go to a special tent and perform ritual sacrifice in order to be with God. Because in Jesus, that sacrifice that has been made is once for all, and our very bodies have become the new temple that houses heaven and earth. So we're going to invite you to come up here and to take a piece of the bread that represents the body of Christ and the cup that represents the life poured out for you. And hold on to those elements and then return to your seat and be reminded that every time we come to this table, we are affirming that this is something worth giving ourselves to. And we heed the voice of God that whispers that God is doing what he said he was going to do from the very, very, very beginning. And he is making a way for us to dwell with him again. And it is my prayer for us that we at Mosaic would be a people who responds to that call with joy and gladness and fear and trembling because this is a holy space and a holy moment because God is here with us. So hold on to those elements and go back to your seat. And I'll come up after the bands play the song and lead us in the taking of the elements together. <laughs>